Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 62. This show is entitled The Great New England Vampire Panic. But firstly from the mentalfloss.com website. Nine crazy things people found inside their walls. By Liz Lenz. The Ballad of the Walled-Up Wife chronicles the story of hapless masons who are incapable of building a wall that will last. After years of failure, they learn that in order to make their work last, they must offer up a sacrifice. Once, as their master's wife passed by, they grabbed her and entombed her in the wall they were building. According to some versions of the ballad, the wall still stands. While immuring wives in walls is strictly outlawed, and largely fictional, the practice of hiding things behind sheetrock or brick is pervasive. From the illegal to the superstitious to just plain insane, here are nine crazy things found stashed inside walls. Number one, babies. In 1850, a mummified baby tumbled out from between the walls of a Parisian apartment. The couple living in the apartment were charged with murder. They were later cleared when a physician used insects to determine the time of death. This case marked the first time in French forensic science that entomology was used in a criminal trial. And 28 years later, French pathologist Edmund Perrier Maginin used insects to calculate the time of death of a mummified infant in a similar case. Mummified infants have been found in walls as recently as 2007, when contractor Bob Kinghorn discovered the body of a child wrapped in newspaper 
in the walls of a home in East Toronto. Police investigated the infant's death, but were unable to determine the cause. Number two, urine and fingernail clippings. Filled with urine, hair, nail clippings or red thread, witch bottles were hidden in walls and buried in the thresholds of homes to counteract a witch's curse. One was found in Greenwich in 2009 that dates back to the 17th century. Researchers were even able to analyse urine found in the bottle, which contained traces of nicotine. The bottle also contained a piece of leather cut into the shape of a heart and pierced with a leather nail. Scientists are unsure of the symbolism, but in similar finds the bottles have contained heart-shaped cloth pierced by brass pins. A court record from 1682 documents that a husband who believes his wife to be a witch should boil in a pipkin a quart of her urine, fingernail clippings and hair. Number three, live children. Two years after he disappeared with his mother, six-year-old Richard Chekevdia was discovered hidden in the walls of his grandmother's home in Illinois. Ricky disappeared in 2007 after a contentious custody dispute between his mother, Shannon Wilfong, and his father, Michael Chekevdia. His grandmother, Diana Dobbs, insists that the boy lived most of his life outside the walls of the home, only hiding when necessary. However, police reports state the boy had rarely been allowed outside, and a judge found that the boy had been denied access to medical care, education and contact with his peers. The police found the boy and his mother crouched in a hiding place behind a bedroom dresser. 4. Cash In Ohio, contractor Bob Kitts found $182,000 in Depression-era money inside the walls of a bathroom he was renovating. The contractor called the homeowner, Amanda Reese, who offered him 10% of the find. He demanded 40% and the situation devolved from there. When the Cleveland Plain dealer reported on the case, Descendants of the home's original owner, Patrick Dunn, a wealthy businessman who hid the money during the Great Depression, also filed claim to the money. After the costly court proceedings, all of the people laying claim to the money received only a fraction of the find. 5. Priceless Artwork in 1502, Italian statesman Piero Soderini commissioned Leonardo da Vinci to paint a scene from the famous Battle of Anghiari. The painting is thought to be 20 feet long and 10 feet high. In the 1550s, Giorgio Vasari was commissioned to paint over the mural, but the painter reportedly couldn't bring himself to destroy it. Maurizio Serracini, an art diagnostician at the University of California, San Diego, has been looking for the lost Leonardo da Vinci work for 36 years. Serracini is convinced that Vasari hid it in the wall, and he might be onto something. His first big break came in 1970, when he discovered the words Sersa Trova painted on a flag on Vasari's mural. 
Ceracini believes that the phrase, which means seek and you will find, indicates that Vasari built a false wall over the painting in order to preserve the mural. Recent technology has enabled researchers to take pictures of the hollow between Vasari's mural and the wall, where they discovered black pigment believed to be similar to the pigment used in other Leonardo da Vinci paintings. Unfortunately, bureaucracy and political protest have stymied the investigation. Number 6. Ill-Gotten Gains In the walls of his home in Oakbrook, Illinois, mobster Frank Calabrese hid jewellery, firearms and, of course, cash money. Lots of it. During Calabrese's 2007 trial, authorities learned that the longtime hitman liked to stash money and weapons into the nooks and crannies in his homes. After the trial, federal agents procured a search warrant and discovered Calabrese's stash of loot and taped recordings with other mobsters behind the basement's wood-panelled walls. Calabrese's lawyer told the Chicago Tribune that he was concerned that these items hadn't been discovered in previous searches of the home. Number 7. Shoes a collection of 300-year-old shoes was found in the wall of the Gothic Lieberg Palace in Korschenbrock, Germany. In Lubenham, England, a pair of shoes was built into the wall of Papillon Hall in order to rid a family of decades of misfortune brought on by a curse. And in cottages and churches across Europe and the United States, hundreds of shoes have been found tucked inside walls. The practice is so common that the Northampton Borough Council collects recorded instances of concealed footwear. If you find any, let them know. Some scholars theorise that the practice of immuring shoes is done for good luck and to ward off evil spirits from entering a home. Number 8. Cats the practice of hiding cats in walls was an ancient ritual to ward off evil spirits. All over the UK, mummified cats are frequently toppling out from between the walls of 17th and 18th century buildings. One of the most famous instances was in Pendle, Lancashire, where a mummified cat was discovered in the wall of an ancient cottage. The cottage is presumed to be the location at which one of England's most famous witch covens met. In 1612, 11 men and one woman from the coven were accused of witchcraft and hanged. Number 9. Unmentionables The only thing worse than discovering dirty underwear hidden in your home is discovering centuries-old dirty underwear in your walls. Across Western Europe, unsuspecting homeowners often find caches of garments, under and over, inside the walls of their homes. In fact, the finds are so common that they are not often reported. Evidence indicates that the practice of hiding your knickers in the walls dates back to the Middle Ages. The clothes hidden are often worn and contain hidden objects like documents and coins. According to the website for the Deliberately Concealed Garments Project, 
The tradition of concealing clothes can be related to the practice of concealing other objects, such as dried cats, witches' bottles, and charms in buildings. These types of objects have been discovered hidden in similar places. The concealing of these items, including garments, can be related to folklore and superstitious traditions relating to the ritual protection of a household and its inhabitants. And just after listening to that article and thinking about all those weird and wonderful things that people have put in their walls, I was just wondering, how does one get a dried cat? You can't buy it. I wonder how you make it. And from the news.discovery.com website, an article by Kieran Mulvaney. Mystery underwater sand circles. A little fishy? Stop me if you've heard this one before. A 39-year-old man quits his office job to pursue his dream as an underwater photographer. He spends the next 30-odd years living La Vida Aqua, and then one day he sees something quite remarkable. A circular pattern in the sand beneath the waves. A veritable work of art with valleys and ridges. But who or what could have made such a thing so intricate, so far from the shore, so, well, underwater? The man, whose name is Yoji Ukata, shared the mystery marine art with friends and colleagues from the Japanese broadcaster NHK. To their shock, they found that this is the work, not of a UFO, not of a hitherto undiscovered tribe of aquatic artisans, but a tiny pufferfish. The unlikely artist, best known in Japan as a delicacy, albeit a potentially poisonous one, even takes small shells, cracks them, and lines the inner grooves of his sculpture as if decorating his piece. Further observation revealed that this mysterious circle was not just there to make the ocean floor look pretty. Attracted by the grooves and ridges, female pufferfish would find their way along the dark seabed to the male pufferfish, where they would mate and lay eggs in the centre of the circle. In fact, the scientists observed that the more ridges the circle contained, the more likely it was that the female would mate with the male. The little seashells weren't just in vain either. The observers believed that they serve as vital nutrients to the eggs as they hatch and to the newborns. I'll be honest, when this story first started bouncing around the Twitterverse, I was sceptical. Nobody had ever seen this behaviour or these structures before? Where is the video? Who are the scientists? Is there any kind of peer-reviewed study being written? Was this a hoax? 
I wasn't the only one to be dubious, although, inevitably, some folks' scepticism had more to do with this has nothing to do with UFOs explanation. My brother who lives in Japan checked the links in the original post and assured me that none of them said, ha, you've been rickrolled, in Japanese. I checked with a couple of researchers who responded with the scientific equivalent of WTF. In fact, one of them did actually type WTF, but I haven't seen or heard anyone blow it up yet. And if it is true, well, it would be fantastic and wonderful and impressive. But then the natural world frequently astonishes and amazes, particularly when sex is involved. As Jerry Coyne notes in his Why Evolution is Real blog, sexual selection is a marvellous thing. It leads to behaviours like the singing of humpback whales, physical attributes like the plumage of birds of paradise, and the building of extraordinarily elaborate structures, like those constructed by the bowerbirds of Australia and New Guinea, and, it seems, by the tiny fish off the coast of Japan. And if you'd like to see a photograph of the little circle made by the pufferfish, visit the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the link to the Mysteries Abound episode 62, and then on the link to this article. They're quite pretty, quite beautiful, and quite unreal. Every country has eerie tales of monsters from hundreds or even thousands of years ago. There are many such stories from Asia. Here are a few of those monsters you might want to tell the kids about the next time you have a campfire on a dark and spooky night. 11 Legendary Monsters of Asia from the mentalfloss.com website and it's written by Miscellanea. Number 1. The Penangalan The Penangalan is a Malaysian vampire-type monster who separates at the neck and flies with her entrails dragging behind her. During the day she appears as a regular woman, but her head flies off at night so she can flit around terrifying people and supposedly eating newborn babies. Rituals for protection against the monster or just luck, are used for pregnant women and when a new baby is born. The Penangalang smells of vinegar because she must clean her dangling entrails with it and stuff them back into her body through the neck by morning. How did she get that way? Legends vary, but she supposedly was a normal woman until someone startled her so badly that her head popped off. 
The monster is called by other names, such as Hantu Penangalal, Layak or Krasu in other Southeast Asian countries. Number 2. Mongolian Deathworm The Mongolian Deathworm is 2 to 5 feet long and spits acid at anyone who crosses its path. At least that's what the locals in Mongolia's Gobi Desert tell outsiders who visit. The worm resembles a cow's intestines, but is red. If you touch it, or if it spits at you, instant death follows. Which probably explains why there are no photographs. Although most consider it legendary, a couple of journalists went to Mongolia to find evidence of whatever it was that engendered the story of the Mongolian deathworm. Number 3. The Namahaji The Namahaji are Japanese ogres who, legend says, once terrorised the countryside if they weren't placated with bribes of food and once a year, a young woman. The legend survives in a ritual that takes place in Japan on New Year's Eve, when people dressed in masks as Namahaji go door to door threatening the lazy and scaring children into hard work and good behaviour. Number 4. The Kappa The Kappa lives in the rivers and waterways of Japan. It is bigger than a turtle, but has a turtle shell, or maybe scaly skin like a fish, or sometimes fur. The kappa is said to be able to walk upright like a human, and it always has a depression in its skull where it keeps water, which is its source of power. The kappa comes out of the water to enchant children and lure them into the river, where it can eat them. This story is often told to children to scare them from getting too close to the water. According to this old print, which you can see at the show notes, a good fart will repel them. Number 5. Almasty The Almasty roams the Caucasus Mountains of Central Asia. Dr. Marie Jeannie Kaufman collected over 500 accounts of Almasty sightings in many different languages throughout the Caucasus region, with virtually the same description. The Almatis are like people, they have arms and legs like people, except that they are covered with hair. The hair is like that of a bear, and dark. I always saw them without clothing. They do not know how to speak, they only mumble or bellow. They are not afraid of people, only of dogs. They run very fast. And if you visit the website, there is a picture which is a sketch made right after a 1955 sighting by a member of a Russian geological expedition. An animal of the same description is called Almas in Mongolia. Number 6. Nui The Nui is a Japanese chimera, described with the body parts of different animals, all in one being though exact combinations vary. A legend from the year 1153 says, Emperor Konoe 
begins having terrible nightmares every night, to the point that he falls ill. And it seems that the source is a dark cloud that appears on the palace roof every night at two in the morning. The problem is eventually solved by Yorimasu Minamoto, who stakes out the roof one night and fires an arrow into the cloud, out of which falls a dead Nui. Yorimasu then takes the body and sinks it into the sea of Japan. Number 7. Vetala. Some of the world's oldest tales of vampires come from India, where ancient Hindu stories were taken to other nations by traders and nomads. Among these beings are the Vatala, who are dead but not at rest because the proper funeral rites were not performed for them. They are also described as evil spirits that occupy corpses. A Vatal, which is singular, has uncanny knowledge of the past, present and future which it uses to confound humans. Although they sometimes become guards or helpers to sorcerers who enslave them. Vitala live in cemeteries but wander afield to kill children and livestock. You may recognize a Vital because the corpse's hands and feet are turned backwards. Number 8. Fire Naga The Fire Naga is a Laotian dragon that lives in the Mekong River. It is also known in Thailand, Cambodia, Burma and Vietnam. The Naga is a benign deity that protects the city of Vientiane. Naga fireballs are said to be produced by the dragon, but are actually thought to be the product of fermentation below the surface of the water. Number 9. Tikbalang The Tikbalang is the demon horse of the Philippines. This monster has the head and feet of a horse with very long limbs and the body of a human so it walks upright. They roam the forests and occasionally rape women and leave them pregnant with Tikbalang babies. Number 10. The Manticore the manticore is a man-eating chimera with the body of a lion and a human head. The legend of the manticore arises from the Middle East. The Persians just called it man-eater, and the name manticore is a Romanized version. And number 11. Our final Asian monster comes from the Philippines. The Man-Alangal The Man-Alangal has some of the features of the Penangalan. This vampire is an old but attractive woman who preys on pregnant women and uses her tongue to suck the blood of their unborn babies. A child born with a deformed face is said to have been its victim. The Man-Alangal travels by separating at the waist. Her top half flies with bat wings, while her bottom half remains behind. If you find the bottom half, you can destroy the man Anangal by covering it with salt, garlic or ashes.
And if you're like me, something may have occurred to you whilst you've been listening to these Asian monster stories. It certainly doesn't pay to be a child, a young woman, or a pregnant woman. They certainly get a hard time with these monsters. And continuing with our monster theme, The Rise of the Zombies, from the unmuseum.org website, and it's written by Lee Christick. Vampires have been popular figures in horror since Bram Stoker wrote Dracula in 1897. The root of werewolf folklore can be traced all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Zombies in their current form, however, have only shuffled their stiff-legged corpses onto the silver screen in the last few decades. Where did the zombie myth come from, and why are they now so popular? The term itself, a zombie, actually goes back many centuries before Hollywood appropriated it for horror films. The root of the word comes from the language of Kikongo, spoken by the Bakongo and Bandudu people living in the African Congo. Linguists think the expression came from the related term Nzambi, which means God. The religion in this region of the world was Vodun. When captured and forced into slavery in the New World, West Africans brought their religion with them. There it was mixed with other African traditions and Christianity. The result was the folk religion of voodoo, V-O-D-O-U, sometimes spelt V-O-O-D-O-O. Voodoo eventually became a major faith on the island of Hispaniola and in the two countries that shared that land, the Dominican Republic and Haiti. In voodoo, a zombie is a person who has died and then been raised from the dead by Bokor, a voodoo priest. The zombie's soul is removed and he is rendered into an almost robotic state, following the orders of his bokor without question or self-awareness. Often the bokor will put the zombie to work as a form of free labour. As you might guess, this kind of nightmare scenario made for some great horror stories. The concept was introduced to Western culture in 1929 by W.B. Seabrook in his travelogue to Haiti called The Magic Island. Seabrook, a former editor of the Augusta Chronicle in Georgia, was an odd figure fascinated with the occult, Satanism and folk religions. While travelling in West Africa, he claimed to have tasted human flesh, reporting that the roast from which I cut and ate a central slice was tender and in colour, texture, smell as well as taste, strengthened my certainty that of all the meats we habitually know, veal is the one meat to which this meat is accurately comparable. Shortly after Seabrook's book came out, the ideas within it 
were turned into the first zombie movie, 1933's White Zombie, starring Bela Lugosi. In this film, Lugosi is the evil Haitian voodoo master who enslaves a young pretty girl, Madge Bellamy, as a zombie until she is rescued by her fiancé. Critics bashed the movie for poor acting and over-the-top storyline. However, Lugosi was well known for his role as Dracula in the 1930 Universal Picture of the same name, and his fame no doubt assisted the white zombie at the box office. It did well enough to warrant a 1936 sequel, Revolt of the Zombies. After that, a number of other zombie films appeared, including The Ghost Breakers, 1940, King of the Zombies, 1941, I Walked with a Zombie, 1943, and The Plague of the Zombies, 1966. Eight years after Seabrook's visit to Haiti, author, folklorist and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurtson visited the country and while researching voodoo folklore met a woman named Felicia Felix Mentor. Records show that Felix Mentor had died almost 30 years earlier in 1907, yet she was found wandering the streets in 1936. After making her way to her father's house, which by that time was owned by her brother, she was identified by her relatives. Doctors examined her and reported that her occasional outbursts of laughter were devoid of emotion, and very frequently she spoke of herself in either the first or the third person, without any sense of discrimination. She had lost all sense of time and was quite indifferent to the world of things around her. Hurston interviewed Felix Mentor at length and believed that she had been made into a zombie. Hurston didn't think that Bocors could actually raise a person from the dead, but suspected they drugged them with some unknown potion that gave the victims the appearance of having died. The priests then raided the cemetery, retrieved the person and kept them in a zombie state using other powerful drugs. Hurston pointed out that in Haiti, bodies are interned above ground and without embalming, making the chances of a successful resurrection a realistic possibility. Another scientist took a look at zombies in 1982, when Wade Davis, a Harvard ethnobotanist, visited Haiti. According to his investigations, Bocors used tetrodotoxin, a neurotoxin found in the flesh of the pufferfish, to simulate death in the victim. When the victims awakened, the priest would put them into a psychotic state by giving them a drug like detura. Wade contended that the person's culturally learned beliefs, that they had died and were now zombies, helped reinforce their obedient behaviour. He supported his claims by citing the case of Clavius Narcisse a Haitian man who was recorded to have died in 1962, but was found alive several years later. According to Narcisse, he had quarrelled with his brother, who then hired a bokor to poison Narcisse with the pufferfish toxin, introducing it through scratches in his arm. A funeral was held for Narcisse, but his body was recovered later by the Bokor, who used drugs to make Narcisse into a zombie so he could work on the priest's plantation. 
When the Bokor died, the drugs eventually wore off and Narcisse returned to his family. Davis had his sceptics, but that didn't stop him from writing two books on the subject, The Serpent and the Rainbow in 1985 and Passage of Darkness, The Ethnobiology of the Haitian Zombie in 1988. The Serpent and the Rainbow was made into a zombie movie in 1988. Directed by Wes Craven, it starred Bill Pullman as the scientist who tracks down the macabre truth. It had been almost 20 years earlier, however, that the history of the zombie film had made an unexpected turn. Up to that point, zombies were more victims than perpetrators. People feared being turned into zombies, not being eaten by them. In the mid-1960s, a young TV commercial director named George Romero, along with some business partners, decided to try their hand at making a low-budget horror film. Several scripts were written before Romero came up with the idea of reanimated human corpses that had a hunger for human flesh. Romero's inspiration came from Richard Matheson's 1954 book, I Am Legend. In the book, a plague ravages the world, turning those infected into vampires who attack the few remaining individuals who are immune. I Am Legend has already been made into a film, The Last Man on Earth in 1964. Later, it would be committed to celluloid again in 1971 as The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, and then again in 2007 as I Am Legend with Will Smith. Since the idea of vampires had already been taken, Romero needed to come up with his own monsters for the movie. Instead of drinking blood, he decided to have them consume flesh. He never referred to these resurrected monsters as zombies, but used the term ghouls. In fact, the roots of Romero's ghouls go back not to voodoo, but probably owe more to writer H.P. Lovecraft and his short story, Herbert West, Reanimator. Lovecraft's tale has a mad scientist who, like Frankenstein before him, spends his time reanimating dead bodies. These critters, though, have a taste for human flesh, and the good doctor gets disemboweled in the end by his cannibalistic creations. In June of 1967, a handful of movie makers, led by the then 27-year-old Romero, descended onto the small town of Evans City, Pennsylvania, some 30 miles north of Pittsburgh, to film the picture. The grainy, black-and-white, low-budget production was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters. However, a last-minute conflict with another film with a similar title forced it to be released as Night of the Living Dead. Romero's plot had a group of people trapped in a farmhouse, while across the east coast of America, freshly dead corpses started rising from the grave, then attacking and consuming the living. The mood of the film is unflinchingly grim, as one by one the members of the group are picked off and eaten, or are turned into ghouls themselves, including an 11-year-old girl that snacks on her father. In the end, there is only one survivor of the night's carnage, and he is killed when he is mistakenly identified as a ghoul himself by authorities. When it came out in 1968, the movie was heavily criticised 
because of its explicit content. Variety labelled Night of the Living Dead an unrelieved orgy of sadism. Even those that liked the film, such as critic Roger Ebert, found the way it was often shown at Saturday afternoon matinees filled with children irresponsible. I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them, Ebert said. They were used to going to movies, sure, and they'd seen some horror movies before, sure, but this was something else. Audiences ate it up, however, and eventually the film was recognised by the Library of Congress as a film deemed culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. The New York Times, whose critic had originally referred to it as a junk movie, later put the film on their list of the best 1,000 films ever. It spawned dozens of lookalikes, and Romero went on to do several sequels himself. Its reputation grew as film analysts read deeper meanings into the movie's prevalent slaughter. The little girl eating her dad became a symbol of the breakdown of the patriarchal nuclear family. Others found the movie a grotesque echo of a conflict then raging in Vietnam. Hints about America's racial tensions were also found in the motion picture because the sheriff that callously shoots the lone survivor is white and the victim is black. The original film, which cost only $114,000, earned $18 million internationally and might have made even more. Unfortunately, the distribution company, in changing the title at the last minute, accidentally removed the copyright notification. Under the law at this time, this put the film immediately into the public domain. The number of zombie films that followed Night of the Living Dead are legion. Some are deadly serious, like Romero's sequel, Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Though many have a streak of humour, as in Zombieland, 2009, or are outright comedies like Shaun of the Dead, 2004. The zombie craze has infected filmmakers and audiences throughout the world as Japan's Stacy. Attack of the Schoolgirl Zombies, 2001, and Cuba's One of the Dead, 2012, testify. Whatever the type of film they appear in, it is clear that these new flesh-eating ghouls have joined vampires and werewolves in the modern myth of the paranormal. Why is this new type of zombie so popular? when its predecessor, the traditional zombie of voodoo, only showed up in a handful of films between 1933 and 1969. Some people have suggested that zombies represent the trials we face in modern life. Max Brooks, author of The Zombie Survival Guide, writes, You can't shoot the financial meltdown in the head. You can do that with a zombie. All the other problems are too big. As much as Al Gore tries, you can't picture global warming. You can't picture the meltdown of our financial institutions. But you can picture a slouching zombie coming down the street. Like the invading aliens of the 1950s, once symbolised the communist menace and vampires stood in for the AIDS threat of the 80s and 90s, modern zombies are emblems of our contemporary anxieties. Unlike others though, 
These dangers arise close to home due to our recent economic misfortunes. As Adam Baker writes in the Huffington Post, Zombies are us, our friends, neighbours and relatives. They are not a threat arrived from overseas or outer space. They are our own communities turned monstrous and hostile. Folks we pass in the street recast as deadly predators. Nightmare imagery of desolate streets, cannibal hordes, barricaded homes under relentless assault is our everyday world viewed through the lens of economic desperation. As with past crises, these films will hopefully help us cope with these stressful times. In this age of social upheaval, high unemployment and underwater mortgages, we look to the tales of survival to comfort us. If the kids in Night of the Comet, 1984, can outlast a zombie apocalypse and the end of civilization, perhaps we can survive the real estate implosion and our vanishing IRAs. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And the show notes are kept with those from the Origins podcast at www.origins.info. To bring the podcast to a close, it's quite a long article, so settle back. The Great New England Vampire panic and it comes from the www.smithsonianmag.com website and it's written by abigail tucker children playing near a hillside gravel mine found the first graves one ran home to tell his mother who was skeptical at first until the boy produced a skull Because this was Griswold, Connecticut in 1990, people initially thought the burials might be the work of a local serial killer named Michael Ross, and they taped off the area as a crime scene. But the brown decaying bones turned out to be more than a century old. The Connecticut State archaeologist Nick Bellantoni soon determined that the hillside contained a colonial-era farm cemetery. New England is full of such unmarked family plots, and the 29 burials were typical of the 1700s and early 1800s. The dead, many of them children, were laid to rest in thrifty Yankee style, in simple wood coffins without jewellery or even much clothing, 
their arms resting by their sides or crossed over their chests. Except, that is, for burial number four. Bellantoni was interested in the grave even before the excavation began. It was one of only two stone crypts in the cemetery, and it was partially visible from the mine face. Scraping away soil with flat-edged shovels and then brushes and bamboo picks, the archaeologist and his team worked through several feet of earth before reaching the top of the crypt. When Bellantoni lifted the first of the large flat rocks that formed the roof, he uncovered the remains of a red-painted coffin and a pair of skeletal feet. They lay, he remembers, in perfect anatomical position. But when he raised the next stone, Bellantoni saw the rest of the individual had been completely rearranged. The skeleton had been beheaded, skull and thigh bones rested atop the ribs and vertebrae. It looked like a skull and crossbones motif, a Jolly Roger. I'd never seen anything like it, Bellantoni recalls. Subsequent analysis showed that the beheading, along with other injuries, including rib fractures, occurred roughly five years after death. Somebody had also smashed the coffin. The other skeletons in the gravel hillside were packaged for reburial, but not JB, as the 50-ish male skeleton from the 1830s came to be called, because of the initial spelled out in brass tacks on his coffin lid. He was shipped to the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C. for further study. Meanwhile, Bellantoni started networking. He invited archaeologists and historians to tour the excavation, soliciting theories. Simple vandalism seemed unlikely, as did robbery, because of the lack of valuables at the site. Finally, one colleague asked, Ever heard of the Jewett City vampires? In 1854, in neighbouring Jewett City, Connecticut, townspeople had exhumed several corpses suspected to be vampires that were rising from their graves to kill the living. A few newspaper accounts of these events survived. Had the Griswold grave been desecrated for the same reason? In the course of his far-flung research, Bellantoni placed a serendipitous phone call to Michael Bell, a Rhode Island folklorist, who had devoted much of the previous decade to studying New England vampire exhumations. The Griswold case occurred at roughly the same time as the other incidents Bell had investigated, and the setting was right. Griswold was rural, agrarian, and bordering southern Rhode Island, where multiple exhumations had occurred. Many of the other vampires, like JB, had been disinterred, grotesquely tampered with, and reburied. In light of the tales Bell told of violated corpses, even the posthumous rib fractures began to make sense. JB's accusers had likely rummaged around in his chest cavity, hoping to remove and perhaps to burn his heart. Headquartered in a charming old schoolhouse, the Middletown Historical Society typically promotes such fortifying topics as road iron gristmill restoration and Stonewall Appreciation Day. Two nights before Halloween, though, the atmosphere is full of dry ice vapours and high silliness. 
Fake cobwebs cover the exhibits, warty gourds crowd the shelves, and a skeleton with keen red eyes cackles in the corner. We'll turn him off when you start talking, the society's president assures Michael Bell, who is readying his slideshow. Bell smiles. Although he lectures across the country and has taught at colleges including Brown University, he is used to people having fun with his scholarship. Vampires have gone from a source of fear to a source of entertainment, he says, a bit rueful. Maybe I shouldn't trivialise entertainment. But to me, it's not anywhere as interesting as what really happened. Bell's daughter, 37-year-old Gillian, a member of the audience that night, has made futile attempts to tempt her father with the Twilight series. But there's Buffy in Twilight, and that's what my dad does, she says. I try to get him interested in the pop culture stuff, but he wants to keep his mind pure. Indeed, Belle seems only mildly aware that the vampire, appearing everywhere from True Blood to the Vampire Diaries, has once again sunk its fangs into the cultural jugular. As far as he's concerned, the undead are always with us. Belle wears his hair in a sleek silver bob and has a strong Roman nose. But his extremely lean physique is evidence of a long-distance running habit, not some otherworldly hunger. He favours black sweaters and leather jackets, an ensemble he can easily accentuate with dark sunglasses to fit in with the goth crowd if research requires it. A consulting folklorist at the Rhode Island Historical Preservation and Heritage Commission for most of his career, Bell has been investigating local vampires for 30 years now, long enough to watch lettering on fragile slate gravestones fade before his eyes and prosperous subdivisions arise beside once lonely graveyards. He has documented about 80 exhumations, reaching as far back as the late 1700s and as far west as Minnesota. But most are concentrated in backwards New England, in the 1800s, startlingly later than the obvious local analogue, the Salem, Massachusetts witch hunts of the 1690s. Hundreds more cases await discovery, he believes. You read an article that describes an exhumation, and they'll describe a similar thing that happened at a nearby town, says Bell, whose book, Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires, is seen as the last word on the subject, though he has lately found so many new cases that there's a second book on the way. The ones that get recorded, and I actually find them, are just the tip of the iceberg. Almost two decades after J.B.'s grave was discovered, it remains the only intact archaeological clue to the fear that swept the region. Most of the graves are lost to time, and even in the cases where they aren't, unnecessary exhumations are frowned on by the locals. Bell mostly hunts for handwritten records in town hall basements, consults tombstones and old cemetery maps, traces obscure genealogies and interviews descendants. As a folklorist, I'm interested in recurring patterns in communication and ritual, as well as the stories that accompany these rituals, he says. I'm interested in how this stuff is learned and carried on, and how its meaning changes from group to group and over time. 
in part because the events were relatively recent. Evidence of historic vampires isn't as scarce as one might imagine. Incredulous city newspaper reporters dished about the horrible superstition on front pages. A travelling minister describes an exhumation in his daily log on September 3, 1810. The mouldy spectacle, he writes, was a solemn sight. Even Henry David Thoreau mentions an exhumation in his journal on September 29, 1859. Those scholars today still struggle to explain the vampire panics. A key detail unites them. The public hysteria almost invariably occurred in the midst of savage tuberculosis outbreaks. Indeed, the medical museum's tests ultimately revealed that JB had suffered from tuberculosis, or a lung disease very like it. Typically, a rural family contracted the wasting illness, and even though they often received the standard medical diagnosis, the survivors blamed early victims as vampires, responsible for preying upon family members who subsequently fell sick. Often an exhumation was called for to stop the vampire's predations. The particulars of the vampire exhumations though vary widely. In many cases only family and neighbours participated. But sometimes town fathers voted on the matter, or medical doctors and clergymen gave their blessings, or even pitched in. Some communities in Maine and Plymouth, Massachusetts opted to simply flip the exhumed vampire face down in the grave and leave it at that. In Connecticut, Rhode Island and Vermont, though they frequently burned the dead person's heart, sometimes inhaling the smoke as a cure. In Europe too, exhumation protocol varied with region. Some beheaded suspected vampire corpses, while others bound their feet with thorns. Often these rituals were clandestine, lantern-lit affairs. But particularly in Vermont, they could be quite public, even festive. One vampire heart was reportedly torched on the Woodstock Vermont Town Green in 1830. In Manchester, hundreds of people flocked to a 1793 heart-burning ceremony at a blacksmith's forge. Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice to the demon vampire who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Captain Burton, an early town history says. It was the month of February, and good slaying. Bell attributes the openness of the Vermont exhumations to colonial settlement patterns. Rhode Island has about 260 cemeteries per 100 square miles, versus Vermont's mere 20 per 100 square miles. Rhode Island's cemeteries were small and scattered among private farms, whereas Vermont's tended to be much larger, often located in the centre of town. In Vermont, it was much harder to keep a vampire hunt. Hush, hush. As satisfying as such mini-theories are, Bell is consumed by larger questions. He wants to understand who the vampires and their accusers were in death and life. During his Middletown lecture, he displays a picture of a man with salt-and-pepper sideburns and weary eyes, an artist's reconstruction of JB's face based on his skull. I start with the assumption that people of past generations were just as intelligent as we are, Bell says. I look for the logic. Why would they do this? 
Once you label something just a superstition, you lock off all inquiry into something that could have been reasonable. Reasonable is not always rational. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on African-American voodoo practitioners in the South who cast love spells and curses. It's hard to imagine a population more different from the flinty, consumptive New Englanders he studies now. But Bell sees strong parallels in how they try to manipulate the supernatural. People find themselves in dire situations, where there's no recourse through regular channels, he explains. The folk system offers an alternative, a choice. Sometimes superstitions represent the only hope, he says. The enduring sadness of the vampire stories lies in the fact that the accusers were usually direct kin of the deceased, parents, spouses, and their children. Think about what it would have actually taken to exhume the body of a relative, Bell says. The tale he always returns to is in many ways the quintessential American vampire story. One of the last cases in New England, and the first he investigated as a new PhD coming to Rhode Island in 1981 to direct a folk life survey of Washington County, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. History knows the 19-year-old, late 19th century vampire as Mercy Brown. Her family, though, called her Lena. Mercy Lena Brown lived in Exeter, Rhode Island. Deserted Exeter, it was dubbed, or simply one of the border towns. It was largely a subsistence farming community with barely fertile soil. Rocks, rocks and more rocks, says Sheila Reynolds Boothroyd, president of the Exeter Historical Association. Farmers heaped stones into tumble-down walls and rows of corn swerved around the biggest boulders. In the late 19th century, Exeter, like much of agrarian New England, was even more sparsely populated than usual. Civil War casualties had taken their toll on the community, and the new railroads and the promise of richer land to the west lured young men away. By 1892, the year Lena died, Exodus population had dipped to just 961, from a high of more than 2,500 in 1820. Farms were abandoned, many of them later to be seized and burned by the government. Some sections looked like a ghost town, Reynolds Boothroyd says. And tuberculosis was harrying the remaining families. Consumption, as it was called, had started to plague New England in the 1730s, a few decades before the first known vampire scares. By the 1800s, when the scares were at their height, the disease was the leading cause of mortality throughout the Northeast, responsible for almost a quarter of all deaths. It was a terrible end, often drawn out over years. A skyrocketing fever, a hacking bloody cough, and a visible wasting away of the body. The emaciated figure strikes one with terror, reads one 18th century description. The forehead covered with drops of sweat, the cheeks painted with the livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the breath offensive, quick and laborious, and the cough so incessant as to scarce allow the wretched sufferer time to tell his complaints. Indeed, Bell says, 
symptoms progressed in such a way that it seemed like something was draining the life and blood out of somebody. People dreaded the disease without understanding it. Though Robert Koch had identified the tuberculosis bacterium in 1882, news of the discovery did not penetrate rural areas for some time, and even if it had, drug treatments wouldn't become available until the 1940s. The year Lena died, one physician blamed tuberculosis on drunkenness and want among the poor. 19th century cures included drinking brown sugar dissolved in water and frequent horseback riding. If they were being honest, Bell says, the medical establishment would have said, there's nothing we can do, and it's in the hands of God. The Brown family, living on the eastern edge of town, probably on a modest homestead of 30 or 40 stony acres, began to succumb to the disease in December 1882. Lena's mother, Mary Eliza, was the first. Lena's sister, Mary Olive, a 20-year-old dressmaker, died the next year. A tender obituary from the local newspaper hints at what she endured. The last few hours she lived was of great suffering, yet her faith was firm and she was ready for the change. The whole town turned out for her funeral and sang one sweetly solemn thought, a hymn that Mary Olive herself had selected. Within a few years, Lena's brother Edwin, a store clerk whom one newspaper columnist described as a big husky young man, sickened too and left for Colorado Springs, hoping that the climate would improve his health. Lena, who was just a child when her mother and sister died, didn't fall ill until nearly a decade after they were buried. Her tuberculosis was the galloping kind, which meant that she might have been infected but remained asymptomatic for years, only to fade fast after showing the first signs of the disease. A doctor attended her in her last illness, a newspaper said, and informed her father that further medical aid was useless. Her January 1892 obituary was much terser than her sister's. Miss Lena Brown, who has been suffering from consumption, died Sunday morning. As Lena was on her deathbed, her brother was, after a brief remission, taking a turn for the worse. Edwin had returned to Exeter from Colorado Resorts in a dying condition, according to one account. If the good wishes and prayers of his many friends could be realised, friend Eddie would speedily be restored to perfect health another newspaper wrote. But some neighbours, likely fearful for their own health, weren't content with prayers. Several approached George Brown, the children's father, and offered an alternative take on the recent tragedies. Perhaps an unseen, diabolical force was preying on his family. It could be that one of the three Brown women wasn't dead after all instead secretly feasting on the living tissue and blood of Edwin, as the Providence Journal later summarised. If the offending corpse, the journal uses the term vampire in some stories, but the locals seemed not to, was discovered and destroyed, then Edwin would recover. The neighbours asked to exhume the bodies in order to check for fresh blood in their hearts. George Brown gave permission 
On the morning of March 17, 1892, a party of men dug up the bodies, as the family doctor and a journal correspondent looked on. George was absent, but for unstated but understandable reasons. After nearly a decade, Lena's sister and mother were barely more than bones. Lena, though, had been dead only a few months, and it was winter time. The body was in a fairly well-preserved state, the correspondence later wrote. The heart and liver were removed, and in cutting open the heart, clotted and decomposed blood was found. During this impromptu autopsy, the doctor again emphasised that Lena's lungs showed diffuse tuberculosis germs. Undeterred, the villagers burned her heart and liver on a nearby rock, feeding Edwin the ashes. He died less than two months later. So-called vampires do escape the grave in at least one real sense, through stories. Lena Brown's surviving relatives saved local newspaper clippings in family scrapbooks alongside carefully copied recipes. They discussed the events on Decoration Day when Exeter residents adorned the town cemeteries. But the tale travelled much farther than they knew. Even at the time, New England's vampire panics struck onlookers as a baffling anachronism. The late 1800s were a period of social progress and scientific flowering. Indeed, many of the Rhode Island exhumations occurred within 20 miles of Newport, High Society's summer nucleus, where scions of the Industrial Revolution vacationed. At first, only people who'd lived in or had visited the vampire-ridden communities knew about the scandal. We seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition. Instead of living in the 19th century, and in a state calling itself enlightened and Christian, one writer at a small-town Connecticut paper opined in the wake of an 1854 exhumation. But Lena Brown's exhumation made news. First, a reporter from the Providence Journal witnessed her unearthing. Then a well-known anthropologist named George Stetson travelled to Rhode Island to probe the barbaric superstition in the surrounding area. Published in the Venerable American Anthropologist Journal, Stetson's account of New England's vampires made waves throughout the world. Before long, even members of the foreign press were offering various explanations for the phenomenon. Perhaps the neurotic modern novel was driving the New England madness, or maybe shrewd local farmers had simply been pulling Stetson's leg. A writer for the London Post declared that whatever forces drove the Yankee vampire, it was an American problem, and most certainly not the product of a British folk tradition, even though many families in the area could trace their lineage directly back to England. In the Boston Daily Globe, a writer went so far as to suggest that Perhaps the frequent intermarriage of families in these backcountry districts may partially account for some of their characteristics. One 1896 New York World clipping even found its way into the papers of a London stage manager and aspiring novelist named Bram Stoker, whose theatre company was touring the United States that same year. 
His Gothic masterpiece, Dracula, was published in 1897. Some scholars have said that there wasn't enough time for the news accounts to have influenced the Dracula manuscript. Yet others see Lena in the character of Lucy, her very name a tempting amalgam of Lena and Mercy, a consumptive-seeming teenage girl termed Vampire, who is exhumed in one of the novel's most memorable scenes. Fascinatingly, a medical doctor presides over Lucy's disinternment, just as one oversaw Lena's. Whether or not Lucy's roots are in Rhode Island, Lena's historic exhumation is referenced in H.P. Lovecraft's The Shunned House, a short story about a man being haunted by dead relatives that includes a living character named Mercy. And through fiction and fact, Lena's narrative continues today. Part of Bell's research involves going along on legend trips, the modern graveside pilgrimages made by those who believe, or want to believe, that the undead stalk Rhode Island. On legend trips, Bell is largely an academic presence. He can even be a bit of a killjoy, declaring that the main reason that no grass grows on a vampire's grave is that vampire graves have so many visitors who crush all the vegetation. Two days before Halloween, Bell and I head through forests of swamp maple and swamp oak to Exeter. For almost a century after Lena died, the town, still sparsely settled, remained remarkably unchanged. Electric lights weren't installed in the western part of Exeter until the 1940s, and the town had two pound keepers, charged with safekeeping stray cattle and pigs, until 1957. In the 1970s, when I-95 was built, Exeter evolved into an affluent bedroom community of Providence. But visitors still occasionally turn a corner to discover the past. A dirt road cluttered with wild turkeys or deer hopping over stone fences. Some elderly locals square dance in barns on the weekends and streets keep their old names. Sodom Trail, Nooseneck Hill. The white wooden Chestnut Hill Baptist Church in front of Lena's Cemetery, built in 1838, has its original blown glass windows. An early nor'easter is brewing as we pull into the church parking lot. The heavy rain will soon turn to snow and there's a bullying wind. Our umbrellas bloom inside out like black flowers. Though it's a sombre place, there's no immediate clue that an accused vampire was buried here except perhaps for an unfortunately timed Red Cross blood drive sign in front of the farmer's grange next door. Unlike Salem, Exeter doesn't promote its dark claim to fame and remains in some respects an insular community. Old timers don't like the hooded figures who turn up this time of the year or the cars idling with the lights off. They say the legend should be left alone, perhaps with good reason. Last summer, a couple of teenagers were killed on a pilgrimage to Lena's grave when they lost control of their car on Purgatory Road. Most vampire graves stand apart in wooded spots outside modern cemetery fences, where snow melts slower and there's a thick understory of ferns. But the Chestnut Hill Cemetery is still in use. And here is Lena. She lies beside the brother who ate her heart, and the father who let it happen. 
Other markers are freckled with lichen, but not hers. The stone looks to have been recently clean. It has been stolen over the years, and now an iron strap anchors it to the earth. People have scratched their names into the granite. They leave offerings, plastic vampire teeth, cough drops. Once there was a note that said, You go, girl, Bell says. Today there's a bunch of trampled daisies and dangling from the headstone's iron collar, a butterfly charm on a chain. How did 19th century Yankees, remembered as the most pious and practical of peoples, come to believe in vampires? Especially when the last known vampire panics at the time hadn't occurred since 18th century Europe. Some modern scholars have linked the legend to vampiric symptoms of diseases like rabies and porphyria, a rare genetic disorder that can cause extreme sensitivity to sunlight and turn teeth reddish-brown. Exeter residents at the time claimed that the exhumations were a tradition of the Indians. The legend originated in Slavic Europe, where the word vampire first appeared in the 10th century. Bell believes that Slavic and Germanic immigrants brought the vampire superstitions with them in the 1700s, perhaps when Palatine Germans colonised Pennsylvania or Hessian mercenaries served in the Revolutionary War. My sense is that it came more than one time, through more than one source, he says. The first known reference to an American vampire scare is a scolding letter to the editor of the Connecticut Courant and Weekly Intelligencer, published in June 1784. Councilman Moses Holmes from the town of Willington warned people to beware of a certain quack doctor, a foreigner, who had urged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption. Holmes had witnessed several children disinterred at the doctor's request and wanted no more of it, and that the bodies of the dead may rest quiet in their graves, without such interruption. I think the public ought to be aware of being led away by such an imposture. But some of the modern scholars have argued that the vampire superstition made a certain degree of practical sense. In Vampires, Burials and Death, folklorist Paul Barber dissects the logic behind vampire myths, which he believes originally arose from unschooled but astute observations of decay. Bloated dead bodies appear as if they have been recently eaten, a staked coarse screams due to the escape of natural gases, etc. The seemingly bizarre vampire beliefs Barber argues, get at the essence of contagion, the insight that illness might beget illness, and death, death. Vampire believers say that death comes to us from invisible agents, Barber says. We say that death comes to us from invisible agents. The difference is that we can get out a microscope and look at the agents. While New England's farmers may have been guided by something like reason, the spiritual climate of the day was also hospitable to vampire rumours. Contrary to their puritanical reputation, rural New Englanders in the 1800s were a fairly heathen lot. Only about 10% belonged to a church. Rhode Island, originally founded as a haven for religious dissenters, was particularly lax. Christian missionaries were at various points dispatched there from more godly communities. 
The missionaries come back and lament that there's no Bible in the home, no church going whatsoever, says Linford Fisher, a Brown University colonial historian. You have people out there essentially in cultural isolation. Mary Olive, Lena's sister, joined a church just two weeks before she died, her obituary said. In place of organised worship, superstitions reigned. Magical springs with healing powers. Dead bodies that bled in the presence of their murderers. People buried shoes by fireplaces to catch the devil if he tried to come down the chimney. They nailed horseshoes above doors to ward off evil and carved daisy wheels, a kind of colonial hex sign, into the door frames. If superstition likely fanned the vampire panics, perhaps the most powerful forces at play were communal and social. By 1893, there were just 17 people per square mile in Exeter. A fifth of the farms were fully abandoned. The fields were turning slowly back into forest. In her monograph, The New England Vampire Belief, Image of the Decline, Gothic literature scholar Faye Ringle Hazel hints at a vampire metaphor behind the westward hemorrhage. The migration seemed to drain rural New England of its most enterprising young citizens, leaving the old and unfit behind. As Exeter teetered near collapse, maintaining social ties must have taken on new importance, an exhumation represented, first and foremost, a duty to one's own kin, dead or dying. The ritual would alleviate the guilt someone might feel for not doing everything they could to save a family, to leave no stone unturned, Bell says. Even more significant in small communities where disease could spread quickly, an exhumation was an outward display that you are doing everything you can to fix the problem. Residents of the already beleaguered town were more likely terrified. They knew that if consumption wiped out the Brown family, it could take out the next family, Bell says. George Brown was being entreated by the community. He had to make a gesture. The strongest testament to the power of the vampire myth is that George Brown did not, in fact, believe in it, according to the Providence Journal. It was he who asked a doctor to perform an autopsy at the graveyard, and he who elected to be elsewhere during the ritual. He authorised his loved one's exhumation, the journal says, simply to satisfy the neighbours, who were, according to another newspaper account, worrying the life out of him. A description with its own vampiric overtones. Perhaps it was wise to let them have their way, since George Brown, apparently not prone to tuberculosis, had to coexist with his neighbours well into the next century. He died in 1922. Relatives of the Browns still live in Exeter and laid to rest on Chestnut Hill. Some planning ahead have erected their grave markers. It can be disconcerting to drive past somebody's tombstone on the way to his or her home for a vampire-oriented interview. On a sunny Halloween morning, when Belle has left for a vampire folklore conference at the University of London, I return to the cemetery to meet several brown descendants at the Farmer's Grange. They bring, swaddled in old sheets, a family treasure, a quilt that Lena sewed. We spread it out on a scarred wooden table. The cotton bedspread is pink, blue and cream. 
What looks from a distance like large patches of plain brown fabric are really fields of tiny daisies. It's the work of a farm girl without any wasteful applique. Lena clearly ran out of material in places and had to scrimp for more. Textile scholars at the University of Rhode Island have traced her snippets of florals, plaid and parsley to the 1870s and 1880s, when Lena was still a child. They wondered if she used her sister's and mother's old dresses for the project. Perhaps her mother's death too explains Lena's quilting abilities, which are considerable for a teenager. She might have had to learn household skills before other girls. The quilt is in immaculate condition and was likely being saved for something. Lena's hope chest, thinks her distant descendant Dorothy O'Neill, one of the quilt's recent custodians and a knowledgeable quilter herself. I think the quilt is exquisite, especially in the light of what she went through in her life, O'Neill says. She ended up leaving something beautiful. She didn't know she'd have to leave it, but she did. Lena hasn't left entirely. She is said to frequent a certain bridge manifested as the smell of roses. She appears in children's books and paranormal television specials. She murmurs in the cemetery, say those who leave tape recorders there to capture her voice. She is rumoured to visit the terminally ill and to tell them that dying isn't so bad. The quilt pattern that Lena used, very rare in Rhode Island, is sometimes called the wandering foot, and it carried a superstition of its own. Anybody who slept under it, the legend said, would be lost to her family, doomed to wander. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.